Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your girl, Rose Kaz, podcast host of Money, Sex, and Politics, femme founder of the LBI Backstage Pass. Hi, hello. Let's talk about sex, baby. For real, as we dig into each topic separately, we will focus very specifically on each word. This word is sex. So what will we be talking about when we dig into conversations around S-E-X? Well, just a couple notes that I've jotted down in preparation of conversations with amazing people that are doing work around body positivity, consent, access to our reproductive rights. Hello, hashtag trending for life. Um, actually having sex and whatever that looks like from whatever kind of parts that you may have or not have and what you want to do about sex sex versus gender, what that means. This is still very fresh for us to discuss as recovering Puritans. I mean, hey, I'm actually a Jew, but I will say the puritanical culture that is Western civilization, (coughs) can we move on.com? is my question for the audience. And it is my goal through conversations with these different academic folks. Like we are talking both highbrow and lowbrow conversations at the same time, y'all. I am all about the oxymoron. And some people might even say emphasis on the oxy. I mean, not like that, but really in the like extreme definition of, you know, let's say for example, lady boss. I mean, how ironic that we have to be, uh, called, you know, a female doctor, a female lawyer, a female politician. There will be a point when that becomes redundant, but we're still right now in the practice of exercising our gender, our sex, and for that matter, um, anything that empowers us or allows us to reclaim that autonomy around our sex. And as we listed already, there's lots of areas to dig in. So you can be sure you will hear from some really, really, really interesting folks on this pod, um, specifically around sex. That is the point of this pod. We will dig into these three topics around money, sex, and politics on the regs. And in regards to sex, you can be sure you will be titillated. You will be uh, 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 short of breath because you will be laughing so fucking hard and or crying in sheer delight of a shared experience. And that's the whole fucking point, y'all, is because when we talk more about these taboo topics We know that we can relate to one another. We know that we can strike up conversations at dinner with our girlfriends or around the family table or in other contexts of important conversations beyond the ones that we just have here. The goal is that these concentric circles begin to cross-pollinate and spread like wildflowers. Oh, I like that. Let's go with that instead. So that, you know, the needle of progress can continue to shift towards more autonomy for everyone. Okay. And as you know, as you've probably heard um, from the initial intro, and if you know anything about me as a femme founder on the LBI backstage pass, you know, the work we are here to do is to push, to support, to propel a more female led world. That is a more femme forward world. That is a more woman led world. Regardless of what your gender identity is, if you're listening to this pod, my guess is that you're here for doing things differently. And my suggestion, it's not even a suggestion. It's like at this point, it's like a cry for hello. It's not a cry for help. 
I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. But truly the status of the world, the, that which the patriarchy has brought us to up until this point is, uh, again, dumpster, fire, train wreck, shit show. And we can do better. I remain hopeful. I remain optimistic. And we have to keep having conversations about how we move forward in progress, how we don't go backwards in time, and how we actually affect the social change that we want to see. So like I said, through these conversations around sex, we will be doing just that. And if you want to have more conversations like this on the daily, if part of your um, interaction with the world at large is to find you know, like-minded, badass people who are here for changing the powers that be, flipping the script, and literally sharing our tools and resources in different ways, Please, I invite you, my friend, come backstage. Um, the platform we've built on the LBI Backstage Pass is intended to bring together thought leaders, business activists, and industry disruptors that are just like, yo, let's recognize the shit show that exists and let's move the fuck on by being better leaders, by advocating for ourselves and other women, and for that matter, other humans men, women, days, thems, we are building unity. And the goal of this pod, again, and that of the Backstage Pass is to organize these thoughts and these conversations so that we can mobilize and move forward with progress. So if you are here for this conversation about sex, come back for the other conversations about money and politics too. So do that thing where you like, subscribe, rate, review, share with your cousins, tell your mother, tell your brother, Tell your sister too. Um, oh, and fucking for sure, come backstage, okay? So the link is in the show notes, how you can get backstage. It's social media built by women for women. Again, thought leaders, industry disruptors, and business activists come through on that backstage pass. Okay, that's what I got to say about SEX. And I will talk to you later about some politics. Okay, without further ado, I want to make sure that you all know about this incredible human. Welcome to the pod, Dr. Sarah Luna. She is Assistant Professor in Women's Studies in the Department of Anthropology, Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at Tufts University. Dr. Sarah Luna also has a very cheeky side of her, uh, Kegels for Hegel is a conceptual art project and band where she and some friends have written love letters and songs to philosophers. I'm excited. We'll drop a link to some YouTube on that shortly. This is a lady boss, y'all. She is smart as hell. A PhD from the University of Chicago, a master's from the University of Chicago, and a BA from the University of Texas in San at San Antonio. The reason I'm telling this, y'all, is because we're going to talk about sex, but we're going to talk about sex as very, very smart lady bosses over here. And you can talk about sex however you want. No judgment, okay? But we're getting into this talk from some academics. She has written a book called Love in the Drug War, Selling Sex and Finding Jesus at the Mexico-U.S. Border. Dr. Sarah Luna, welcome to the pod. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me, Rose. I'm, I'm really happy to be here today, and I'm doing great. It's Friday, so don't teach today. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Happy Friday for sure. Um, so let's just jump right in. I have been really, really excited about recording this pod for, for weeks, really. Um, particularly learning about you and the work you do. I know you've just come back from Mexico City. You did a sabbatical there. Sounds like that probably informed a lot of the work um, that you've been doing relative to your book. So talk to us a little bit about 
not just your amazing academic background, but what has brought you to this point in your career as ultimately, uh, would you say, a sex sociologist? Sex, a sexuality anthropologist, maybe. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm a cultural anthropologist, um, and I've always been kind of interested in issues of sexuality. I think maybe starting in college when I was an undergraduate at UTSA, I found a feminist organization that we called LIPS, Ladies Incensed by Patriarchal Society, which was kind of a mouthful. Oh, <laughs> but, oh yes, but so is the patriarchy, right? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> totally. Um, and so, um, and I came from a rather conservative and religious family in San Antonio, um, but very loving. Um, and um, I think that that's part of like why I, because I learned about sex being as something that's like really about marriage. And I even like had a chastity ring when I was um, in high school. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that might explain a lot of my kind of, you know, why my academic study has kind of gone in this direction, but also in great part because of the horror stigma and the way that people who are considered either actual sex workers or people who get labeled with a horror stigma end up being persecuted in different ways. Um, that's really kind of motivated my, my research. Wow. Okay. So there's like so many different, we could, we could pull like a Ted talk from each (laughs) right, and go deep in and have probably a number of dissertations and books and conversations. Wow. Um, so I'll just stick to two. One, you talked about the chastity ring you had as a young person, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. I feel like that probably lines up to stories we're told about what sex is, what sex Mm -hmm. means, who can have it when they can have it. And whoever's telling that story, they are sort of the authority of sex. And what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. you say is you believe that up until a point until you didn't. So I'm curious to Mm -hmm. know what that moment for you personally was. And then maybe we can hop into a little bit of that, that same narrative globally and how that actually totally fucks with our autonomy, not just as women, they's thems and men, like how, Mm -hmm. when there's somebody, some human that has authority over what sex looks like when, where, and how, how that affects Mm -hmm. us culturally. So maybe let's start with you personally and then move into it as a larger consideration. Yeah. So I was deeply kind of invested in this notion of like virginity until marriage. And um, it wasn't until I went to college that I started taking, taking classes in gender studies and in anthropology. And that opened up my worldview to all these other different ways of thinking of things. Whereas before I was kind of taught one version of truth with a capital T, you know, which was this kind of Christian um, God, you know, who was, you know, my body somehow belonged to like him and some future husband. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, and through, I think that at the university, I kind of became a feminist and I lost my religion, I fear. And um, I like how you said you lost your religion, almost like people say they lost their virginity. You lost your religion. Yes, I lost it. Needs to be like a whole nother Madonna song. Bless the senior Madonna, but like, let's bring another version forward, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, But yeah, I think the concept of virginity is is certainly um, a kind of dangerous one. and, um, but I think that this is a great part of what inspired me to pursue sexuality studies through the lens of anthropology, um, and to think about how, 
how different kinds of sexual practices have social meanings and also are interlinked with power. And um, so, yeah, now I have an academic perspective. Um, but of course, it was all in part inspired by my own experiences as a young person. Sure. And I imagine now as an older person, we'll not say, we won't say that we're old yet, but we're not the young people we used to be, but we're not like totally vintage yet. It, having that perspective now, um, how has that informed your personal and share what as, as much as you feel comfortable, obviously. Looking at uh, Dr. Sarah Luna in September 2022 versus Sarah Luna in September 23rd, uh, let's say 20, 2000, right? Um, like what are some some differences that you notice about yourself personally from that narrative shift? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, now I'm... I'm, I would say I was deeply invested in, you know, respectability and like being a good girl. Um, that was always like what I associated with being a good person because that's the context that I was raised in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and now I feel like both in my personal life and in my academic life and each it's so much about, it's so much of it is against the politics of respectability and especially mm -hmm. thinking about sexual respectability and thinking like, you know, those kinds of ideas are used so often to marginalize people um, who are further marginalized people who are already marginalized um, based upon their class, race, um, gender identity, sexual practices, um, often in ways that can be very violent and dangerous. And so, I'm, yeah, I'm the first to align myself with, you know, the sex workers, the, the or promiscuous, the, you know, the people who are, you know, seen as not respectable for any, any given reason, because I think that that notion of respectability is fairly dangerous. I recently attended a workshop where um, they were talking about the idea of like showing cleavage to be professional or not professional and who decided that it wasn't personal. And I should say the only reason right now I'm wearing a mock turtleneck is because I'm cold as hell, but typically I'm a big cleavage advocate. And I've always thought of that, like, you know, breasts are beautiful. They feed the world literally. And yet if a woman is showing her breasts, she's said to be promiscuous or a whore or all of these things. And it's just, that's just one of a million narratives that have been created by a certain group that said that. And then we all followed it until we, some of us said, Fuck that. Forget about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's really interesting about the workshop about cleavage um, and, you know, the idea of professionalism and how that gets tied into notions of um, kind of respectability and um, also, yeah, bodies like being, you know, body parts being sexualized. Right. Um, I think that when my, my plan was always that once I either get tenure or like go through menopause, that I'm just going to amp up the cleavage, like in professional <laughs> context, you know, my cleavage is going to be out there. Like that's the, cause I think that also like, as you get older, that it then becomes even like less appropriate. Right. Right. And, and something I've been really, really interested to unpack and maybe you can lean in on this is especially when we talk about feminism um, between women of color and white women in the mm -hmm. States. I, I, I haven't lived for a prolonged period outside of the States, so I wouldn't know exactly. But my experience here in the States in studying feminism is that at a certain point, <laughs> you know, white women were like 
really advocating for white women, right? We were saying mm-hmm. feminism, but we weren't really saying for all of the women, right? And right. so I've been really enjoying conversations with all sorts of women, whatever that may mean, women with an X, women with a Y, those who mm-hmm. you know call themselves women, but ultimately that the new version of feminism, I think personally is more of a humanism because it means all of us, right? Particularly as female identified people. But what, you know, again, shifting that narrative um, as you did individually, how you see that both as a professor and, you know, uh, a modern day woman in a world that is, it's easily global. I mean, we're in two different places of the world right now, um, but the way social media connects us all very quickly, it's just curious to think like how we can take a new version of feminism forward into this modern moment. Right. Right. Yeah. Feminist means to me something maybe different from when I first started identifying as a feminist. Um, but I think that for feminism to be, to continue to be relevant, um, which I think it is, but I think it has to be trans inclusive. It has to be inclusive of non-binary people. And, um, it has to be also like deeply intersectional, um, (laughs) and, and, and actually, yeah, be, go beyond just the concerns of white women, certainly. So I think that there's now been plenty of scholarship, plenty of activism, and um, I sometimes see some, I occasionally see my students, not all of them, but some of them kind of, you know, rejecting white feminists or like saying bad things about white feminists. Um, but I actually think, I mean, white feminists have done a lot of important things in the world. I mean, many white feminists have a lot to learn and need to be open to learning, but like also, you know, I, yeah, I I think that like, I want to see bridges across generations, like people who are my students and people who are my teachers. Um, Mm. And also I think that sometimes these become kind of intergenerational conflicts and debates. Um, But I really hope that, feminism continues to be even more and more intersectional and um, more and more inclusive of, you know, all the people that maybe were not originally considered with a category of woman that when feminism, um, you know, when people started these feminist movements, but that like, I think the category of woman should expand and also feminism shouldn't be just fighting for women, but also, um, for like gender against gender discrimination against discrimination of sexuality and um and also for um these issues of racial justice and um global inequalities and class inequalities ah i love that it's a perfect segue into my next question for you because i'm really interested in you know not just unpacking and looking at what what modern day feminism is but also how folks who identify as women lead us into um, what is ultimately a more equitable world for all of the people. And in fact, that's why I'm building the Backstage Pass so that we have a a digital hub where we get to connect safely, securely, and confidently um, as we build a platform that people can access. Eventually, all the people can access. But much like Mm -hmm. Facebook, right, it had its, well, actually, very much not like Facebook, I should say, but I want to mention that Facebook started, right? Zuckerberg and his buddies were hanging out in their dorm room, slut shaming women. And they were like, oh man, how can we, how can we connect all these people? Right. And, and so they did. And so it's no, I have, I have, I have no doubt in my mind why 
that platform has its ethical situations and its little holes for sort of uh, squirrely behavior, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's my goal that we build a digital space online that's founded by women like yourself and me and many other that look slightly different but have a sim- similar mission in our um in our copy that we're like here to make the world better for all of the people through our advocacy around, you know, the different topics that we talk about on this podcast. And certainly I'm sure within your academic work. So I'd love to dig into the work that you do around pleasure activism. Obviously that must have something to do with sex. I personally find sex to be pleasurable and I've into my forties now learned how to make it even more pleasurable and lose some of that old narrative we talked about earlier of things we should or shouldn't do based on some other narrative. So talk to us a little bit about your work around pleasure activism and how it has informed perhaps your, your books and your um, teachings and, and maybe even your personal life. So the, there's this great book called pleasure activism. Um, the Politics of Feeling Good by Adrienne Marie Brown. And this is really a, a book that's centering kind of Black feminist approaches to pleasure um, and thinking about pleasure as being something, saying basically, I what if pleasure, if, if we think about sexual pleasure, other forms of pleasure, and also like the pleasure of social justice. And part mm-hmm. of the idea is like maybe instead of, what if instead of, rallying together around our shared suffering, we actually tried to create something that's pleasurable and like, you know, unite ourselves based on pleasure. The work of different kinds of um, black feminist scholars in the US, um, some of whom call themselves the pleasure, um, Brittany Cooper and Joan Morgan, um, but there are multiple people who who are kind of in this group um, who are all doing their own kinds of scholarship, um, mm-hmm. but really kind of going through like a kind of black feminist lens of thinking about pleasure in relation to that particular the kind of the particular context that they're coming from. Those are the kinds of things that I'm reading. Um, but my research is about people in Mexico City who are doing something that seems similar in a certain way. I don't know if they're actually reading all these people I just talked to you about, um, but these act, these queer activists in Mexico City are doing all these kind of sexual education workshops um, and um, events. Like there, I went to so many, during my field work, I went to several ejaculation workshops um, and masturbation workshops and um, also kind of learning how to like use a speculum and see your cervix and all these things. So there are, um, as well as there are these activists who are trying to create forms of community and spaces um, for um, feminists and queers. Um, And I think that they're also coming from a very kind of intersectional lens too. Um, Mm -hmm. They're, they're actually practicing the kind of feminism that like I I would want, you know, what I want, want feminists to be, you know, they're, they're, they're putting it in action. And this is, has also been a nice bridge for my former project. My first book was really, was a, about a prostitution zone in the Mexican border city of Reynosa, Tamaulipas. And um, it was about sex workers there, as well as the missionaries who, um, who tried to forge relationships with the sex workers. And this was happening in a context of drug violence, 
um, and gun battles on the streets and people being afraid of being tortured and murdered. Um, and so before I was writing about kind of ideas of love and obligation, but in the context of this deeply violent situation, um, and now I am looking at people who are also worried about violence. A lot of the feminist activism in Mexico is like, stop killing us, stop killing us. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of, these, um, some of these queer activists are saying like, okay, well, you know, yes, you should stop killing us. But in the meantime, like, we want to try to create new worlds. We want to have as much pleasure as we can. We want to learn about our own bodies, other people's bodies, find different ways of experiencing pleasure and kind of creating pleasure and um, learning from each other and teaching each other what we know. Wow. Yeah, that is incredible. And also occurs to me, beside uh, the obvious that it's so important, right? If feminisms are, if feminists are, are calling for, please stop killing us. Right. Um, yeah. That's, that's, you know, it made me think of what w- the work we're, we're doing here for BLM movements, right? Like we're talking yeah. about equality, but we're also saying, please stop killing us right over here yeah. right now. Right. Yeah. Um, and I said us, because I don't refer to my black and brown sisters and brothers as them, because I feel like we are actually all connected. Um, I read something beautiful this morning. I meant to bring it in um, around the color of our blood all being the same, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of what genitals or skin colors we have, we have red blood. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, so back to that work, particularly um, that you were most recently studying with the ejaculation workshops and the masturbation workshops. This strikes me as incredibly important, right? Because when we have more knowledge, we have more power. And going back to that original narrative that you shared around having your chastity ring, and I had a similar, uh, much more, um, let's call it in the box upbringing as well, where I've kind of been kicking the walls down all the whole way up into my adulthood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and reclaiming what are each of our own narratives. It sounds like the work that they're doing in Mexico City around education is really to give that power back to the individual, right? Like, having information on how to use a speculum to look at your own vulva, to have a look at these things that we don't even have proper words for. The word for vulva in almost every language is translated to something pertaining to shame. Oh, wow. wow. I was not surprised, but I was shocked, right? Like, ah, oh, fuck, you know? And that's exactly why I want to keep having conversations with women like you, Sarah, is because I really firmly believe the more we talk about things like money, the more we talk about sex, the more we talk about politics as, you know, underserved, misrepresented, oppressed, however you want to say it, marginalized groups, um, we get to reclaim that power because we're we're sharing information, we're sharing and we're, we're normalizing conversations. But as you said with that group in Mexico City, or groups it sounds like, they're, mm-hmm. they're activating things that give power, that help share power, help reclaim or help people find what their own narrative is, which I think is super, super key. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about what you've been writing into your own narrative with that, you know, exposure. I know you're working on another book. It's still very much in the makings. Um, But particularly what from that experience in Mexico, Mexico city, are you bringing back with you to the States? Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Right now I'm writing this article that is still, it's still in its very early stages. So I'm still not quite sure what my central argument is going to be. But I'm building it around this um, event that I went to, which is called Lucha Lube. So kind of like luchador, 
wrestling, but mm-hmm. um, in a vat of lube. Um, and it's a vat of homemade lube made with flax seeds. I can pass you the recipe. Little so, DIY. <laughs> and so I, and this is something that I learned in one of the workshops that I took in Mexico City, right? How to make this flaxseed lubricant. But I was learning this in the context of um, these seminars where also I should mention that these, these sex educators were teaching us not only about, you know, how to feel more pleasure, how to, you know, these techniques um, for, you know, enhancing pleasure in bodies, but also about the kinds of histories and contexts of violence surrounding things like gynecology and, um, you know, the kind of racist um, gynecological like violence that was, that was done on or to enslaved women. And um, also how some of our, some of the parts of our bodies are like named after some of these dudes who, um, who did horrible things. So many pieces of our anatomy, which, you know, pertains to our autonomy, depending on who you ask, I, I definitely agree, um, have been sort of discovered, if you will, by mm-hmm. men. And so that's so interesting as we reclaim it. And so you were saying, um, you know, some of this that you've learned in Mexico City and bringing back into your teachings sounds like sort of a reclaiming of, again, of a, a different narrative, which probably truly is, is your life's work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A really great filmmaker um, who's also a sex worker rights activist um, named Donna Nai, um, who is working in, she, I think, lives in Puebla, like outside of Mexico City, but she sometimes lives inside of Mexico City. But she makes these really great um, short films about uh, pleasure and violence and the horror stigma. And in one of them, um, is called like, it's translated to coming is not peeing. Um, and she shows some of the, the information about, um, about these kind of like racist patriarchal underpinnings of modern gynecology and like the, the, the body parts. And she learned some of this from, um, Diana J. Torres, um, who wrote this book called Pucha Potens or like powerful pussy. She's originally from Spain, but now lives in Mexico city. And she gives ejaculation workshops and mm-hmm. she argues that the prostate has no gender. Everyone has a prostate. Everyone has the ability to ejaculate. And she sees this as a very political kind of message that's been mm-hmm. taken away from us, like in part to reinforce the gender binary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah. Fuck. Okay. So that tees up my final question for you that I really want everybody who's listening to this to think about as well. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately. So who cares anyways? Like what's the big deal if we come or if we don't? Who who cares if we if we have pleasure or we don't? Who cares if we get off during sex? Who cares, right? And what is what is the power that begins to happen or the the taking it back to our original talk about like changing the narrative? Mm-hmm. when we start doing that, what happens, right? Or said in a different way, why have we been held back or taken away from or told that this doesn't matter for eons? Why has this power been withheld from women particularly? And what happens when we reclaim it for the rest of the world, right? Like what mm-hmm. happens when we masturbate a little bit more? Or what happens when we tell our partner, like, actually, that doesn't really feel good. What if we do it like that? Or what happens when we level up our 
amount of pleasure, whether it's through sex or through our work. And we just essentially engage in things that feel good versus things that feel like shit. And I know it's probably a rhetorical, it might be something that you're working on answering through your academics and within your, your teachings, but just curious um, what you think about that from a standpoint of um, why it even matters. Yeah, mm, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think that, I, mean, I think there is something that's seen as especially dangerous about like women having pleasure or people with other genders having pleasure. And especially if they're women who are, yeah. Also, I think that the sexuality of different of people who are poor and people who are racially marked is also especially seen as deviant and especially regulated. Um, so I think that there is, I think it also becomes maybe part of it is like a fear of, um, kind of, that if we're all getting off, we're, we're less, less going to be less productive somehow. And like a kind of capitalist system. I'm not sure if that's, that's part of the fear. I think part of the fear also has to do with, um, kind of power and like the idea that our bodies should be for other people's pleasure. And so I think there's something, you know, dangerous and potentially dangerous about being like, harder to control if we're, you know, <laughs> if we're all if we're, coming all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about you. When I have a, when I have an orgasm, I am like energized. I'm like, let's fucking go. I've got some shit to do. I've got a vampire to build, you know? And maybe that's the thing, right? Like I'm a woman. So maybe that energetic, like pussy power is frightening to the patriarchy. Right. But yeah. at the same time, look at all the, have a look at any city, not even in the States in the whole world. Right. What do structures look like? Buildings are straight up and down, right? Monuments are straight up and down. There's phallic objects everywhere that that demark the way that the current structure of power is, right? Mm-hmm. And that maybe doesn't have to do with coming, but I kind of think it's all tied together. So I want to see more monuments. I want to see more vagina monuments. I want to see more like buildings that are wavy and beautiful and, and circular. And I don't think that means like less beautiful architecture or less... Mm-hmm you know, monuments or a less productive culture and society, right? I think it just means a different one. Dr. Sarah Luna, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you. I love the work that you're doing in the world. I can't wait to read your books, the first two and the upcoming one. It's right. Do I have that right? You've got two in the hopper already and you've got a third one coming out. I have one published and then I'm working on the second. Okay. Math is not my strong suit, but uh, talking about sex is, I love talking about money, sex, and politics, especially with badass women. So definitely check the show notes for all the awesome links that Sarah has mentioned. Um, I'll be super excited to uh, just share this with everybody far and wide. I'm thrilled to know you. Thanks to our friend Jen for connecting us. And any parting thoughts that you have that you want to be sure that um, we touch on before we wrap? I don't think so. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely glad to have you here and can't wait to check out what you uh, have in store for your next book. So cheers to you. And thanks again, Sarah. Thank you. Oh, hey, what's up? It's Rose Kaz popping in, the femme founder of The Backstage Pass. And I just wanted to tell you a little bit about what we're actually building back there on the backstage. 
So we dig into topics like money, sex, and politics in ways that you may not have done before. I kind of think about when I very first encountered the internet a couple decades or two ago. In fact, if you'll take a little trip with me in your mind and when you very first used the Googlebots, whether that was five days ago, five months ago, five years ago, or a couple decades too, I don't want to date myself, although I would totally swipe right on me. I just want to have that same curiosity as we dig into these topics, but also as we utilize the internet. And for that matter, and how we use social media. That's exactly what I'm trying to do in my professional life, as well as my personal life, to be honest, is do a system upgrade. I know that we can use the internet better. And for that matter, we can utilize and interact socially on the internet, it's called social media, in better ways. So that's what we're doing. We're going old school internet. You know, think of those old AOL dial-up days. Think of those ways when you were like, hold on, I'm gonna go check the encyclopedia. Wait, what? I can chat room about this? Yes, that's what we're doing. We're going old school interneting here, y'all. How? Stay tuned for the next pod. Oh, and you could also come backstage. Check us out on the Backstage Pass, y'all. LBIbackstagepass.com. L like lady, B like boss, I like international. Backstagepass.com. All right. See you there. Ciao for now.